welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy! It's amazing that explaining life's immense diversity All comes down to some genetics and some biochemistry And life on Earth is just one family And what's true for you is true for all biology Hello, welcome to the final genetic shambles in the series. Uh, except, well, there's a kind of there's going to be a little genetic shambles actually in our 24 hour show, uh, which is going to be coming from uh, King's Place, our live show on the 12th of December. Well, between midday on the 12th of December, midday on the 13th of December. But this is the, the main series coming to an end with a fantastic guest. So I will first of all just say a few thank yous. So first of all, thank you to the Genetic Society and Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath, uh, which is the reason that we've been making these uh, during lockdown, post-lockdown, and now lockdown again. Uh, this uh, also, I'll, I'll mention uh, a couple of other things. Of uh, We started off with expert panels uh, on COVID-19. All of the panels that we've done, you can still listen to those. Uh, uh, they are and, and in watch them as well should you wish to uh they're uh, just unzipped and they're also at uh cosmicshambles.com that's the visual version uh on the 12th actually mentioned the 24-hour show we've got an expert panel again we're going to be talking about covid and that's with emma hodcroft and dan davis who you'll have seen uh, i think both of them have been up a couple of times uh on this series and on other things that we've done about covid19 uh, over the last few months um and if you'd like to ask any questions then just go to live chat and uh, our producer trent will make sure i see them or you can just just go to our Twitter account at Cosmic Shambles and send any questions for Professor Steve Jones there, because that is our guest. Our guest is Steve Jones, Emeritus Professor of Human Genetics at University College London and Fellow of the Royal Society, uh, author of many best-selling books. And in fact, one of the books that I think really helped me on the way to eventually doing things like The Infinite Monkey Cage, I remember buying Almost Like a Whale uh, in a small bookshop in Manchester, which is sadly no longer there near uh, the corner house, and uh, reading it on the journey home and just finding it filled with so many ideas about the nature of life on on earth that had never come anywhere near entering my mind before and it was one of those kind of almost uh without getting too religious it was almost a damascene moment reading that book um so uh steve, steve hello hello, hello. hello. I want to start off with we should start with the beginning of your career and something that you you have said in the past, which is you have a guilty secret and is a guilty secret that you think is shared by many uh, biologists and those who go into genetics as well, that you began as a bird watcher. Yes, that's right. And even worse, or perhaps slightly better. I began as a completely incompetent bird watcher. I mean, there are many biologists who, a colleague of mine, Linda Partridge, who can, can, can spot a, a greenfinch at five miles. Um, I can't. I could, you know, I could, oh, I could say that's a duck. 
Um, but I, I did begin as a bird watcher, and it was kind of important to me uh, in retrospect. My parents, uh, quite unexpectedly, because they didn't really take much notice of my scientific interests, um, they gave me for my 13th birthday a pair of binoculars, cheap binoculars, but they were good, and I still have them. Dolland and Aitchison's they were, the last British binocular. I still got them, and I used to go and I used to go bird watching, and I was I was never any good at it. Uh, the place where I used to do it most of all, I lived um, for my sins on Liverpool's left bank, which is uh, Birkenhead, the little uh, um, on the Wirral Peninsula, which is uh, uh, I have to tell you a dismally dull place. But one of its um, strengths was off. One of the coasts on the Dee was a little island called Hilbury, which was a famous um, stopping point for migrating birds. And I used to go out there often, take the bunk off school and go out there and, uh, and look at the birds. And I had no, a couple of adventures there. It was cut off by the rising tide and you had to get back. And I had to get back to get back for the afternoon or they'd notice I was there. And I suddenly realized I'd been cut off. And so I started waiting for this tide, and it was kind of very frightening because, of course, the power of the water is huge, and I just managed to get back. So I survived being a bird watcher. Now, this is what was there that that interesting transition? There's that beautiful moment where Richard Feynman talks about his father uh, taking him around the woods in the Catskills, I think, when they were on holiday, and the fact that um, many of the other children uh, had learned all the names of the birds. And his father said, yeah, he he reeled off all of these supposed different names of a brown-throated thrush of Japanese and Chinese and French and whatever. And at the end of reeling off, what Feynman says is probably many of them made up names. He says, if you know all these things, all you know are the names of bird, the name of that bird in many different countries. Now let's look at the bird. And that seems to be the transition into science, that bit where you go, now let us look at that thing. Let us let us forget about the names for a moment. Well, that's a strange thing because the first expensive book I ever bought, and I, I had to uh, save up a, a lot to buy it, was called The Handbook of British Birds, which is five volumes, beautifully bound book of the 1950s, which is a real twitcher's handbook. And I'm very good at the Latin names of birds, the corbo, phylacrocorax corbo. You know, I mean, I can, I'm good at Latin names of birds, but I wasn't all that good at identifying birds so that... Um, um, Feynman's dad was right. I love there's a Edwin Collins, the great musician Edwin Collins. I remember meeting him once and his wife said to me, she said, Do you know what? He's the kind of person who used to only have one book. The only book he had was a book called Some British Birds. And I thought, now there is an author who lost his nerve at the last minute. I've done the book of British birds, all of them. Let's just call it Some British Birds, just oh, in case. That's right. There are so many British birds which you've only been seeing once. Um, you know, you're never going to see them. Um, yeah, but Sunbridge Birds is a good title. Title of my next book, I think. <laughs> the, um... Actually, it's appropriate because my next book, putting in the advertisement, its title is actually Sex, Age and Death. But actually, some British birds would say about the same thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> the, um, well, so, so you will be fulfilling your promise always as a geneticist, which is to make sex boring then. Is that the plan of the book? That's the first line. That's the first line of the book. <laughs> <laughs> It is um because I, I find when did you become when did that that transition from bird watching to snails come? Because I, I remember talking to someone who who went for a lengthy walk with you 
And as as people people who who maybe uh, I imagine most people know about your work, but you, your obsession with snails is a wonderful thing to observe. We we did an infinite monkey cage on the last series, which was not about snails, but it became about snails because you were the guest on the show. I think we had to change the Radio Times listings to make it entirely about snails. But you have an ability to be able to, I mean, literally on a walk, just pick up snails. People don't even notice that you'll end up with a pockets filled with snails and then be able to look at each shell and see the distinction. So when did that fascination really first bloom? Well, it, it happened. Yeah, I remember it well, actually. Um, it happened when I was an undergraduate I know um, in Edinburgh, which was a wonderful place to be a student. And I was very, very happy to be there. I was very well taught. And we went on a field course to Malamtown Field Centre in uh, Yorkshire. Uh, we actually, I'd been when I was a schoolboy. It's a lovely place. You know, it's a big, it's, it's a moorland with uh, limestone cliffs. And the bloke who took me, who was, then became my PhD supervisor, a guy called Brian Clark, um, we collected some snails on this, I vivid memories of, of it, on this talus, this talus, this uh, slope down from the cliffs. And I picked these snails up and I thought, Jesus, these things are really beautiful. And they really are. Um, and uh, we counted them and we looked at the variation and I didn't I kind of thought uh, looking back on it I can remember, I remember it now I kind of thought I'd spend my life my life working on these things and I did um, but you've got to this is in the prehistory of genetics we're talking about the mid-1960s and it's worth remembering that there were in those days that there were almost no creatures in the wild where you could see genetic variation. You know, if you look at a mouse, it's a bleeding mouse. If you look at a Drosophila melanogaster, it's a goddamn fly, okay? But these snails were different. Um, they had patterns of uh, inherited diversity in the colors of the shells and the number of stripes on the shells and various other things, which means you could go out into the wild and, and count genes. And there were almost nothing else. There were some butterflies you could do that with. And plants were a bit better. There were several plants you could do it with. But animals generally, you couldn't do it. So actually, although people laugh at me, I laugh at myself for having spent 40 years, 50 years more uh, looking at snails. Actually, in those days, if you wanted to look at genetic diversity, which is the interesting subject, it was quite a good thing to look at. And I spent years and years doing them. I, I collected at the last count, 400,000 of them, um, all over Europe. I went to Yugoslavia. I spent many months in Yugoslavia working on them. I worked on them in the Spain, in the Pyrenees. I, I then got into the boring end of genetics, which is, of course, is molecular genetics, and I started doing protein diversity in them, in the Pyrenees. Then we did some DNA diversity with them. So I got a lot out of snails, really. Um, and you tend to forget that the questions that, you know, all these advanced molecular genetics ask today are exactly the same questions as we were asking in the 60s with the snails. Why is this variation here? Does it make any difference? Why do they differ from place to place? Do they choose to live in different habitats and all that kind of stuff? So I, I absolutely do not regret having spent my time working on those slimy creatures. And you do. I mean, some of the. I, I remember the the first time. I can't remember with, with, whether it might have been in your in, in your recent book. Actually, here comes the sun, where you uh, talked in the introduction about the uh, um, the diversity between 
snails in separate valleys, next door valleys in the Pyrenees, yes. is greater than the diversity between chimpanzees and human beings, which I think well, most people would find remarkable. They would think a snail is yeah, a snail. Yeah. We're so different to chimpanzees. Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's the molecular diversity, and that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, sure. The diversity between two snails and you know, two snails in populations in different valleys of the Pyrenees is bigger than the diversity between humans and cows, let alone chimpanzees. Um, but um, yeah, but that's you know that's just the way it is. I mean, humans genetically are the world's most boring animal because we're basically the same everywhere. I mean, there are some rather trivial differences in appearance, which you've begun to understand. But in terms of um, um, the measure that's called FST, the genetic difference between populations, we are the most boring of all primates. The difference between two groups of chimpanzees living maybe 100 kilometers apart in West Africa are bigger, far bigger, than the differences between you know the peak of human talent which is, of course, the French, and and Australian Aboriginals, you know, I mean, who are the most different from uh, much of the rest of the human population. So we are a very, very boring creature in our bodies, but, of course, in our minds. That's one of the reasons why we're so boring, because we don't work through our bodies anymore. We work through our culture, through our minds, through our ability to speak, which is what makes us absolutely unique. Now, I mean... Just thinking about evolution, I think it was in one of your um, columns for the, the Telegraph. I might be wrong, but you, I remember reading something years ago where you talked about the fact that evolution is ultimately pretty static, that yeah. the, the world used to be filled with bacteria, and it still is. And we are basically froth on a sea of bacteria. True. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you're now sitting, as I'm sure you know, on a colon full of the most charming and delightful um, uh, bacteria, depending on what your diet might be. Um, are, are you a vegetarian? I am a vegetarian, but I have just had some Asderone cheese wiggles. So I think that oh, one jiggles. I'm not sure. So that may well have made that. That well, could have. Well, I, I'm not quite a vegetarian. I eat fish now and again. So we, we have, we've got convergent evolution of the, of the contents of our colons. So, so that, in that sense, in, in terms of our, our picture of evolution, what is it that you think people should understand? Because that seems to me to be something which when we, uh, normally we see a tree of life and we see it as a flamboyant sense of progress. We see, you know, these very small creatures. Then we see all manner of kind of fascinating sea creatures. Then we have the whale. And then we have, you know, again, other larger mammals. And we see that as progress. And you don't really, should that poster just be, here we go, here's, here's bacteria and then just at the top, almost drowning, the heads of a couple of mammals. That's true. I mean, Darwin, who was a fairly intelligent man, I have to say, he said he was very strong on that. He never he said never say higher or lower, higher creatures and lower creatures. I mean, there's there's only one exception to that, which I think is fair, which is us, because we are different, unique. You know, many creationists hate evolution because they think it drags us down to the level of the apes. Um, but I feel exactly the opposite, which is the more you know about evolution, the more you realize that humans are unique. It gives you a new uniqueness from, um, you know, as Gilbert Sullivan said, um, Darwinian man, though well-behaved, is nothing but a monkey shaved. And in physical terms, that's true. Some of us, I can see, are more shaved than others. Um, uh, that's true. I mean, the difference between us and chimpanzees is absolutely trivial. 
But in every other sense, the difference between us and chimpanzees is absolute. And that's what makes me think that evolution makes you makes should make humans think. Not that they're less special than what they were, which is what creationists uh, accuse us of doing, but they were more special. You realize that on top of our undistinguished frames, we have this unique brain of which there's nothing similar in the entire living world. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, the, the desire for human exceptionalism, yeah. when to me it seems like such a far more exceptional story to see all of you know, the, the variety of life I, I, and the richness. Just one second, my wife wants to know. Norma, can you turn the oven off? Uh, right, she's turned the oven on. No. It's turned good. I like the these moments. It means everyone knows this is real. It's much like when Chris Hadfield's dog started barking in the background. Uh, the um, now, now I, w I wanted to ask a little bit about. I've got the, this actually the updated edition of uh, the Language of Genes, which was your oh, first book. It's um, not very updated. It's two thousand. That's the prehistory of modern genetics. Yeah, but that's exactly what I was. In. You know, th this is based on your wreath lectures of nineteen ninety one. The book came out in nineteen ninety three. Um, now, do, do, what do you feel are the things that would most have to be changed? If you, if you were doing, I mean, would you basically be wiping away almost the entirety of those wreath lectures, or are there certain things where you go, well, well, this frame of story remains, but within it? Yes, I don't think I'd, I'd write it. I'd, I'd wipe it all away. Um, but you know, there's two kinds of science. There's real science, which is physics, um, right, um, and as I understand it, which isn't very far. My dad actually was a physicist. Um, uh, the more you learn about physics, the simpler it seems. And biology, of course, is exactly the opposite. The more you learn about biology, the more of a mess it seems. And I gave when I gave those wreath lectures in the early 90s, genetics was beginning to look simple. Well, of course, since then, it's turned, you know, I mean, genetics with Mendel started off with peas, okay? It was simple. Now it's become pea soup. Um, everything is a mess. And in some ways that's reassuring because, you know, th there's a great line again from Darwin, I use it all the time, which is that ignorance breeds confidence more than does knowledge. So if you don't know anything about it, then you can be totally confident. And the history of genetics summarizes that absolutely because in the very early days of genetics, with Galton and co, and with the eugenicists, looking back, they knew nothing, nothing. But they were entirely confident that genius, Galton's book was called Hereditary Genius, genius, criminality, everything was in the genes. And that, and of course, we know what now, that's only extremely partially true. But that led to the disasters of sterilization, not just in, in Nazi Germany, but in Sweden and in the United States, not, I'm glad to say, in Britain. It led it, it directly to the, to the um, racist movements of the 1930s. And yet we now know that they were totally ignorant about these subjects. And I think that's the most important thing you learn as a biologist, if not as a physicist, that the more you know, the less you understand. It does. Uh, I, I think it, either in the introduction of language of the genes, or maybe in the blood, you do actually say that uh, you know it will be filled with uh, that. Uh, what's it? Uh, the the story of genetics has been graced and disgraced by eccentrics and fools. Yes, it has. I, I count myself among at least one of those categories. Um, but most of the eccentrics and fools are the people who don't know. 
Okay. And they've, I, I, to be frank, I think they've kind of begun to go away. They certainly hadn't begun to go away when I first wrote, God, I'm going to hate him, many 30 years ago when I first wrote that book. Um, um, I think they've begun to go away now. The good thing about genetics is that actually it's become just another science. It's not a sort of Damocles um, poised over your head. It's not the cure for all human social and medical problems. It's just another science. And I think that's been, a, that's been its biggest advance in the last 30 years. It's interesting, I suppose, that in, in, uh, there was a time when it was used to justify things like racism, whereas now it's quite the opposite. Thinking about the well, I've, I've always had a, I've always had mixed feelings about that. Uh, I remember when I worked in the states, uh, I've done long enough for years. But when I worked with a guy called Dick Lewontin, who was still with us but old, um, and it was just the very beginning of the time in 1968 um, when somebody in the Galton Laboratory at UCL, which is where I now work, uh, 50 years later, um, um, had begun to realise by taking blood samples from people of different ethnic background. Um, it was then a surprising finding, it was quite unexpected finding. It, uh, it, was, it was that actually that Africans and Europeans were not entirely different, which scientifically even in those days, see, forgetting all the uh, political and social stuff, seemed not unreasonable to assume because Africans and Europeans and Chinese do look reasonably different. Okay, um, But it was a big surprise in 1968 to find that actually, in terms of the difference between you know, snails and Pyrenean valleys, uh, they're scarcely different at all. Okay, Basically, we're all Africans. Some of us are more African than others, the ones who are still in Africa. But the rest of us are just a small sample of all Africans. And I remember being in Chicago with Nwantin, who was a kind of lefty um, geneticist. Um, he didn't say, but one, one of the, we were discussing this work, and somebody said, oh, that's wonderful to find that uh, Africans and Europeans are really almost identical. That means that racism is wrong. And even in my naive state of those days, I said, hang on a minute. Does that mean if we discover that Africans and Europeans are actually more different than we thought, does that mean that racism is right? And since then, with DNA, rather than proteins, which it was in those days, uh, it has turned out that Africans and Europeans and certain groups of Africans, the Khoisan in South Africa most of all, um, are dis somewhat distinct from Europeans and the rest of the world, which isn't surprising because, as I said, uh, we're all a small sample of, of, of Africans when they came out and filled the world. But does that make racism right? I don't think so. I mean, the two things are, are totally independent of each other. Mm. It's interesting in the um, in the last few years. I, I wonder the uh, or indeed, in fact, going back to the sixties, where you know you talk about, and as has been mentioned quite a few times on this show, the uh, that it does it feels to a bystander that these have been a couple of revelatory decades in terms of our understanding of genetics. At the same time, as you said, it's also made things even messier, and you know, nature and nurture becomes an even more messy kind of, but. Do you feel in the last 20 years, what for you have been the most revelatory moments in terms of those moments where you almost felt the ground shifting beneath you? Can I talk about snails for a minute? Of course you can. And to be honest, I'd be disappointed they've been lacking for the last five minutes. Well, the funny thing is, um, uh, 
the one thing there are two things I remember. I mean, I was young at the time. I, uh, there were there was um, there was um, um, as I said, these snails vary in in the number of stripes they have, whether they're color, what color there is, whether they're either black or white, <clears throat> and. They'd been collected in Britain, and as I said some time ago, these were the only things we could work on. There were no, there was no other, almost no other variable systems, and there was a claim that um, that uh, what drove the differences between British populations of these snails were local differences in climate, um, microclimate. They knew there were frost hollows where um, cold air accumulated, and that in that it paid it paid to be. Um, to be dark in colour, so you could warm up in the in the morning when the sun came down and you warmed up, and everybody walked around saying, "Oh, this is true, this isn't true." And being a nerd as I was in the sixties, I didn't go to the internet, but I bought a book about frost hollows. Well, I read a book about frost hollows, and it said that the biggest frost hollows in Europe are in the Velebit Mountains in what was then Yugoslavia, is now Croatia. So I thought, "Well, screw this. Let's go and have an expedition to the Velebit Mountains," which is what we did. And lo, lo and behold, the frost hollows were quite amazing. And down in the bottoms of these basins where it was cold, um, there were lots of dark-colored snails. And on the slopes of the basins, where in the morning when the sun came up, uh, it was mist down below and it was sunny on the slopes. There were lots of light-colored ones because they, they, um, they, they, they didn't eat up and the ones in the bottom uh, um, had to, when the mist cleared, they needed to heat up quickly. So I thought, huh. And I was walking, God, I haven't thought about this for years. I was collecting snails around the cliffs of Cornwall about in the mid, late 60s with a, f a friend of mine who's now professor of Oxford, professor of, was professor of zoology at Oxford, and is somewhat, he'd be the first to uh, admit, a bit, uh, somewhat of a pain in the neck. Um, um, we were walking around the cliffs collecting these snails, having a lot of fun. It was 1968, St. Ives, 1968. Where else would you want to be? Hippie capital of the world. Um, and we walked past a big board which had lots of wires um, attached to it. Um, and, you know, electric, big, thick electrical wires pointing southwest. And I was in the pub that night. I fell into, I fell into conversation with some primitive Cornish person. And I said... What's that bloody board up there about? And he said, oh, well, what it is, is that uh, what they want to know is whether the different colors of uh, insulation, whether they break down in the sun more than others. And a little light went on over my head. And I said, hang on a minute. So I thought maybe I could make a dye which fades um, most quickly in the sun. And I thought, how am I going to do this? And we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. And of course, people were, were, wore jeans in those days. Um, and I thought, ah, bad joke coming up. We'll do some gene manipulation, I thought. So I got some denim and I cut it into squares and I put it on snails. And that didn't work. So I thought, well, okay, let's, let's see what the, 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 the dye in these jeans is actually called it's called kumasi blue it's a dye which fades in the sun so I thought, huh, how am i going to deal with that so then i had another right idea which is to take yellow paint um uh, stable yellow paint car paint and dissolve this dye in it to make a green paint and then you could dot this green paint onto thousands literally thousands of snails and see whether the snails are different color 
um, faded more in the sun than others. In other words, whether they spent more or less time in the sun. And the answer was sure as hell they did. And that kind of helped explain why the variation is there. Because by having all that diversity of color and sunlight kills snails. I mean, they, they, they have to shuttle in and out of it. Uh, some could stay in the shade. Some could go out in the sun. So it was a matter of um, what we call diversifying selection. And it was a very nice, neat piece of work, which I published um, in Nature some years ago. As far as I know, it's never been referred to since. <laughs> it's lovely that it's St. Ives. I think it reminds me of being in uh, the garden of uh, sculpture garden of Barbara Hepworth uh, and just seeing the uh, the cobwebs all over the uh, sculptures and then actually seeing a snail approaching one. It's a beautiful thing to see a snail approaching contemporary art and wondering how it will perceive <laughs> it. Um, I better ask some of the questions that we've been sent in. Uh, Victoria Smith uh, would like to know each time some new discoveries made in genetics, it always seems to just strengthen Darwin's theory rather than find holes in it. Why is that theory in particular so strong? Well, the, Darwin's book is called The Origin of Species, and it's you've got to remember it was a brief history of time of its day. It was written as a popular book, and that's why it's such a wonderful book, um, because he keeps saying, he breaks off now and again, saying, I have far more information on this fact, um, and in times to come, I will write, I will explain this in much more detail. And he spent the rest of his life doing that. He wrote another, what, 13 books, was it, um, which did that. But the beauty of The Origin of Species is its immediacy. It starts off with the simplest thing you can imagine, which is the difference between different breeds of cattle and sheep. And, you know, you all know that different breeds of cattle descend from the same cattle um, and the sheep ditto. And he lays that down and he just walks the way through the subject, adding layer and layer and layer to its argument. And finally, two to, one page away from the end, he, he says, light will be cast upon man and his origins. So it's an entirely logical book. Um, um, so I don't um, I remember what the question was again. Well, just what what is it about that theory that makes it so strong that that just well because it's the strange thing about about Darwin's book. It's called On the Origin of Species. All right, where natural selection and preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. But oddly enough, it's not about the origin of species, and the origin of species is still a very recalcitrant issue in evolutionary biology. Um, we. Not entirely sure what species are, not quite sure how they started. But the beauty of the book is that it makes sense. It makes you realize that we are on a tree. Uh, and we're not on a high branch or a low branch of a tree. We are simply on a tree of descent. And the evidence of that is now absolutely overwhelming. And the more people deny that, the more overwhelming the evidence sees. And as I said a few minutes ago, uh, many people say that this diminishes them, but to me and to many other biologists, it doesn't. It, it increases their feeling of being human. So I just, I mean, I have, no, I have no time. It's just so silly to try and deal with creationists who just deny the facts. That's, you know, I mean, the flat earth analogy is a bit silly, but that's what it is. I mean, they do their own case far more damage than they do mine. 
Yeah, I think it's that thing, isn't it? Which if someone asks, well, how come we come from apes? You think, well, they, this is not the first time they've asked this. And they have been answered a thousand times with a very, you know, logical and reasoned answer. I must ask you if you remember, because I remember one of the things, I think maybe it was in Almost Like a Well, I love that one of the early uh, criticisms of on the origin of species, I think from an editor, was why don't you concentrate more on pigeons? People love <laughs> yes. homing. i remembering that. Yeah, that's very funny. Yeah, because it starts off with pigeons. Um, pigeons are in chapter one um, and uh, it seems a weird thing to do but actually um, it was not a weird thing to do because if you look at the different breeds of pigeons the ones that sh shit all over Camden Square who are the primitive pigeons the ones in Camden are the most primitive in the world by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you look at all the crazy breeds that are around you cannot but believe that one or the, the breeds evolved from the wild pigeons so yeah but it would have been a really good book about pigeons. Well, I always recommend, as you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan on the book of Earthworms. Uh, I think that's oh, got some, some, you know, there's so many. I think that's an interesting, because it's something I would always encourage people to do. And you're probably one of the reasons that I started reading them, which is that they, they shouldn't be books that are feared, that his writing is so beautiful as well. And yeah. so full of maybes that's one of the things that i love he, he never says this is the way he says well i had this letter from someone and then they said this about a dog and i thought well there's a possibility that that's one of the things that that i also find joyous about his work yeah well the earthworms book darwin said darwin the earthworms book sold five times as many as the um, origin of species and that's because when the Earthworms came out, which is his last book, just a few months before he died, um, that gardeners actually thought that Earthworms were a pest. And they did all kinds of, they were like, you know, nematode worms. We have to get rid of the bloody Earthworms. And they used to do all kinds of strange things. They used to put um, a uh, steel rod into the soil and play it with the bow of a violin in the hope that this would frighten the Earthworms away. <laughs> Mad but true. Um, and of course, Darwin... He, yeah, he, uh, he was the most amazing person. All he did, what did he do? He put earthworms and a mouse corpse into a bottle, a big bottle, uh, with some soil. And within a week, the corpse had been buried by the action of the earthworms. And he realized that the earthworms made the soil. And without the earthworms, evolution, mammalian evolution wouldn't have happened. And he gave the earthworms a new nobility, I felt. Well, I, I love that mentioning the violin, that that now makes sense with, of course, the fact that, you know, playing the bassoon to earthworms to see yeah, how they yeah. would react as well. Yes, exactly. They didn't. Yeah. Uh, they did to the piano. He put them on top of a grand piano and the low notes, which were, of course, vibrated. Them, they, they woke up a bit, but no, they weren't big bassoon people. Well, I highly recommend anyone watching this if you want to start with the Darwin book because it's quite a short book as well. It's not as long as some of the major works, Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, etc. Start on Earthworms and you'll be surprised how much delight you find in it. Oh, really um, I was, no, start, uh, with, start with The Voyage of the Beagle. That's a wonderful book. Oh, with Voyage of the Beagle is, yes. Yeah. And that's, yeah. But also all of, I mean, that's what amazes me about his writing is so many things which I presumed were in the main books. And you find out, you know, some of the, the journal entries and letters and, you know, those huge collections of letters. Again, yeah. very rarely do you come across one which doesn't have something in it, Absolutely. which even it sometimes as little as a delightful phrase, but sometimes the entire story uh, within it. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, yeah. I never met him, but I met many of his descendants. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, I, I, I think another good place to start, if people are, is, is I think Annie's box has a lot of very interesting yeah, uh, it does yeah, tales. Yeah, yeah, well, that's by one of his descendants. Um, yes, that's true. The death of his daughter. Um, um, yes, uh, he was very he was very struck by that, very uh, hurt by that. There's no question. Um, yeah, yeah. It was a fascinating. I mean, his kids were remarkable people. His um, grandson. What's his name? Leonard. I come. Bernard. Bernard Darwin was uh, Britain's first golf champion. So it was obviously a highly talented family. <laughs> oh, this is so. Now, after age, sex, and death, I can see that the golfing book is also waiting. That's the thing, and always snails. There will always be snails within. I will, um, because we've only got a few minutes left. I did just want to ask you about, um, in terms of what have you found most frustrating in terms of perhaps the 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 myths or half truths about genetics because again because it feels that it's it's something which people in in newspapers they like to write about it it's the kind of thing that people like to read it has a level like neanderthals of a certain kind of science clickbait to it do you find there are certain things that you are uh, having to uh, demolish with greater regularity at the moment when it comes to the general public i would say things have got better Really, I mean, it, it's no longer the solution to everything or an anti-human disaster. What I find depressing among students is that UCL, University College London, where I work, which is where modern human genetics really began, um, um, students hate it. Um, I think the biology students don't, but the students as a whole do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about naming um, naming professorships or buildings about people. But Francis Galton, who was Darwin's cousin, who wrote a book called Hereditary Genius, as you know, founded the eugenics movement. Uh, Marie Stopes was the, was a great progenitor of the eugenics movement. Um, and she's often, she, and she was a lecturer at UCL. Um, and I, there are many, many people at UCL. If you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, where you and you read their writings about eugenics and sterilizing the unfit and all that stuff, it makes your hair stand on end. I mean, this shouldn't, this is just dreadful. This isn't science. This is uninformed science masquerading as politics. But at UCL, there's been this um, really quite annoying, uh, not very annoying, but certainly slightly annoying attempt to rename all the spaces named after Haldane, after Galton, after Spearman, who invented the IQ coefficient and so on. And this strikes me as just stupid. Because if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, when human genetics had just begun, this is the way that people thought. And if you look at the way they thought and their political views, they are now completely unacceptable. But political views change, all right? Scientific views at least the basis of science, don't change. So that these people actually got the science right. And they were very important figures in the field. And it just depresses me that students most of all, but actually the general public, the media as well, cannot separate the science from the politics. They're entirely divorced from each other. And that's more important in genetics than in any other science. 
right i've got i've got one more question which is specifically about your career now from someone which has just come in from sounds 106 um with paul nurse quite early on in this series we we're talking about uh research found in the bottom drawer that kind of and uh uh, that idea of you suddenly go, oh, good Lord, I hadn't realised. I'd forgotten I'd written that paper. Um, or I'd forgotten about this collection of shells. And this is what Sounds 106 would like to know. Given the amount of field work that you've done, do you ever wonder if there's some big discovery in all the data that you might not have looked at for years? God, <laughs> that, that's a question that stings. I have huge amounts of data. Um, I don't, don't, I'm not sure there's any great discoveries in them, but I have what 50 or 60 boxes i mean i was a, you know i was a hard worker I, I, I used to go out with gangs of people and do field work i had you know 12 or 15 people working with me um so i got gigantic quantities of data and i never wrote it up it's like what was it pascal's was it pascal's lost fermat's theorem yes fermat's theorem right where he wrote in the in the in the in the uh, margins of a scientific book i have the answer to this question and nobody knows what the answer is. So maybe I have the answer to the genetics of snails, and even I don't know what the answer is. Well, the trick is make sure you leave a few diaries dotted around where you just mention you've had the answer. And at the very least, people will believe that you knew. And that, that's, that's, you know, that's Sun Tzu's art of war, isn't it? As long as they believe that you knew, that's half the story told for them. Um, and one final thing, which is I, I remember you, you, you wrote, um, one, genetics has nothing to say about what makes people more than machines uh, driven by biology. Does that yeah. remain true? Yes, that absolutely remains true. I mean, you can see that in those rare occasions when conflicts break out. And in, in, in wartime, um, then we become machines driven by our biology. I've just read a book by, uh, what's his name? It's called Berlin. It's about the invasion of Germany from the east by the Russians. And of course, the Russians in those dreadful days, hated the Germans because they'd done awful things. And what they did, they turned, both sides turned into animals. Right? They raped, they murdered, they tortured. It was just absolutely awful. So that the potential for humans to become animals is always there. But fortunately, we all read The Guardian. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Steve. You were uh, only halfway through your supper. Now you can have the second half. Um, I mentioned to everyone watching, by the way, that uh, as a as there are always uh, wonderful uh, tangential moments uh, which are, are worth it for tremendous anecdotes. So here comes the sun is out now. Thank you very much to everyone who made Genetic Shambles possible uh, over the last few months. With luck, we will return, uh, hopefully in a time where you're all free as well at the same time. Uh, and uh, thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton, and have a lovely evening. Good night. Bye-bye. <laughs>